Welcome to the Real Estate Ventures Podcast. In this podcast, we will be speaking with various real estate and business professionals about real estate investing, entrepreneurship, and financial freedom. So, if you're interested in learning about real estate investing, then stay tuned and be sure to take advantage of the free tips and strategies that will be shared by our weekly guests. And now, your host, Penny Lubinsky. Hey, and welcome back to the Real Estate Ventures Podcast. I'm your host, Penny Lubinsky. Today, we have an awesome guest, Jonathan Nichols. Um, he's been in real estate since 2018. He founded his company, Apogee Capital, together with his wife in 2020. They've been involved in multifamily syndications, both on the LP and GP side. And he also has, a, they have a short-term, a top-rated short-term rental business in Arlington. So that being said, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Penny. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Um, so the first thing I'd like to dive into is what what you kind of do before real estate and what led you, you know, down this path and into real estate. And then also, what did you, you founded your company in 2020. What did you kind of do between 2018 and 2020 within real estate or was it other stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So my background is um, I graduated from school with a degree in aerospace engineering about eight years ago and um, immediately began working in that industry. And so I had a W-2 career working as an aerospace engineer, specifically on engines um, for helicopters and did that successfully for, for eight years. And like you mentioned, several years after I started my career, I got married and uh, my wife and I began to think about how we wanted to invest long-term. And so obviously we knew many people were successful in investing in real estate, but we didn't know anything about real estate. And so we just started to learn and read books, listen to podcasts, all that kind of stuff. And eventually bought our first property, which was a, a quadplex located in Arlington, Texas, near the Cowboys AT&T Stadium. Um, what was interesting about that project is that um, just based on the normal long-term rental model, it actually didn't cash flow very much at all by the time you paid for maintenance and all the different problems that came along with it. But we got the idea, hey, what if we turn it into uh, Airbnb, a short-term rental property? And so the rest is pretty much history. You know, we did a lot of work renovating it to sort of get it up to speed, so to speak. But then after that began renting it out there and um, then it added another property and another. And so um, basically built a small short-term rental business of, of residential properties that we own and did that successfully for a couple of years. But as time went on, we began to wonder, well, how do we scale this? You know, like the, the short-term rental is great. The cash flow is good, but you know what, how do you actually build a business out of real estate? And um, there's certainly many different ways that people approach it, but multifamily, as I'm sure all your listeners know, is probably one of the most popular. And so uh, we began to talk to some folks from our local RIA meetup and, you know, listen to more podcasts about multifamily this time and just try to learn what it meant to be a multifamily investor. And so, um, like you said, that was a couple, almost two years ago now that we really um, took the plunge and, and started learning. And then we've been very active this year um, actually doing projects as investors, both as LPs, GPs, we did a JV project. Um, and so we've, we've definitely learned a lot. So happy to share, you know, any, any or all that with your listeners. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And, and, uh, what, what's cool is that it sounds like you became an accidental, uh, short-term rental landlord, 
Um, that wasn't the intention. I'm curious as to hear what kind of didn't work about be, it being a long-term rental and like what worked better about it being a short-term rental? Like how did that work out better into the numbers or whatever else it was? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, a lot of people, when, when you start learning about real estate, one thing you do is you learn how to analyze a property, right? So when it's on the market, you look at the rents, you look at what the rents potentially could be, and you run an analysis of like, okay, how much money am I going to make with this thing? And if you're in a hot market, you know, and you're looking at a single family home, sometimes buying a home and getting like $200 a month of cash flow is, is really good. That's definitely the case here in, in Texas. I'm sure there's other markets like New York, for example, where, you know, a negative cash flow of $200 would be outstanding. But we, we'd run the numbers on this fourplex and we thought we were going to cash flow, let's say three or $400 a month on it. Um, which at that time we were satisfied with, like I said, this was our first investment property, but the truth is we wound up spending at least a couple hundred a month more on maintenance than what we had even budgeted for because the property was so dilapidated and maltreated by the tenants that were there. And so, you know, we, we began to think, wow, like we done so much work, invested so much. We don't want to just you know, negative cash flow or basically break even each month on this. What what can we do differently? And um, that's that's where the idea came in. To be honest, as you've kind of already alluded to, uh, it wasn't intentional jumping into the short term rental model, but um, we did go into it, you know, wholeheartedly. And fortunately for us, it worked out very well. Uh, the big differences between long term and short term rental, quite frankly, is just the time. You know, many people get into real estate investing for passive income. And if you're a good long-term landlord, you can be decently passive, you know, especially if you have a good team that can do the repairs and stuff like that. Um, when you run short-term rentals, like it is a legit business, you know, you need, you definitely have to have team members. If you have multiple properties that you're doing, um, you can expect that you're going to be bothered a lot more by different problems and complications that come up. Um, so there is a time component that goes with that additional income for us in our stage of investing. We were very happy with that. And we've also been blessed that since then we've been able to grow the business and add team members to a point where, um, you know, we now manage 13 properties with honestly like the same amount of time that we managed one when we started. So, um, you know, we've definitely gotten better. We still have more to learn, still have a ways to go, but, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely great for someone that's willing to hustle and, and put in that extra effort. Right. Absolutely. And, um, one thing I just want to point on is, you know, everyone always says in real estate, always have, um, you know, more than one plan or always have a backup plan and, yeah. or, you know, two exit strategies, you know, people talk about all the time. And I just think it was pretty cool and, and creative on your guys end that to be able to figure out that, Hey, this isn't working as a regular rental. We don't necessarily have to go and sell the property. It can still cash flow just in a different way than we thought initially. And turning that into a short-term short -term rental was just, obviously you guys had enough like understanding about real estate to be able to go and explore that option and make that cash flow for, for you guys. Um, but it's actually, it's interesting because I right now have my first um, uh, short-term vacation rental under contract. So this is- Congratulations. Topic, thank you. Uh, specifically a topic that I'm very interested in. Can you just explain, um, I guess maybe not just to me, but to the listeners, like on a high level business model work with short-term rentals, like what are you kind of looking for? What kind of market? What's your ideal tenant? Or like, how does that work? And just a quick overview. 
Yeah. Wow. Quick overview. Let's see what I can do. Um, so uh, for anyone that doesn't know, if you've never stayed in an Airbnb, VBR, you know, short-term rental property, basically it's a platform. It's a website where you can rent someone else's home, apartment, um, property for a short term, meaning one night, two nights, three nights a week, maybe even a month. Um, but not an annual lease type of scenario. So your, your target customers can be pretty, pretty wide variety, but, you know, can include, as you mentioned, people on vacation. So some rentals will target people on vacations. Um, um, so, you know, I have friends who maybe they have properties in Tennessee or I know Joshua Tree is like a really popular vacation rental spot now. And those obviously target tourists. Um, here in the Metroplex, we do have tourism. Our properties are very close to the AT&T Stadium. And so we definitely get folks coming in for the games, for other events in the area. Um, but we also get a lot of business travelers, you know, people who maybe they're coming in to work for their company for a month. Or, you know, maybe it's a family who they're moving to DFW and they need temporary housing for two to four weeks while they find an apartment. Um, there's all different kinds of customers in a market like ours, a big city um, that you can choose from. And it's interesting because in, in real estate, people typically tend to, in most analysis, people tend to, you know, overestimate things. But ironically, the amount of clients you can get is something that I find most people tend to underestimate. Um, most people be surprised, you know, how many people, just the sheer volume of people that are traveling and going. But, you know, you think about a, a market like DFW where we are and how many hotels are in this market. Um, that kind of gives you an idea of how many people are traveling or staying here on a short term basis. Right. And while the hotels, in a sense, are your competitor, um, what you're offering really is distinct. Right. Like we're we're offering a oftentimes like say a two bedroom apartment with a kitchen and amenities that a hotel does not have for a very comparable price. And so we find that a lot of families really like to come and stay with their kids while they're on vacation. It gives them more space. It gives them the ability not to have to eat out every meal. Um, and so there's that. So as far as the logistics behind it, um, probably the biggest thing is the turnovers. So any landlord knows that, you know, doing the turnover, um, at the end of the year and getting a new tenant is probably the most hectic time of being a landlord. Well, in short-term rental business, you get a new tenant every couple of days on average. And so you have to be able to clean the place properly in between every guest, um, address the concerns of the outgoing guests, the incoming guests, you know, handle any disputes. Um, and you have to have systems in place that will allow you to do that at volume. And so that's kind of where the challenge comes in. So you know, a lot of operators, they'll own one or two and just self-manage it forever. And that's great, you know, but if you really want to make a business out of it, then you have to have a team that has an understanding of how to handle a lot of those items so that you'll be able to scale and, and have multiple rentals. Right. So. Because I guess otherwise it would just be too much, too, too much like hands-on stuff and it would keep you from, keep you back from scaling or moving faster. Um, yeah, correct. Just one, one question I have is, okay, so with regular long-term rentals um, on the residential side, typically landlords are trying to get uh, 95, you know, at least 90 to 95% occupancy throughout the year. Um, and that would kind of keep them going. I'm curious with the short-term rental, does the same rules apply or can you make buy with like a lot less than, you know, 90 or 95%? Yeah. So this is where every short-term rental operator is going to have a little bit different opinion because I know people who they do short-term rental on like luxury homes and they stay maybe like 40 or 50% occupied and they're extremely happy with that. 
they're not trying to fill every single night on ours. Ours are more of apartments that we've renovated, um, small apartments. We have the fourplex I mentioned. We now have an eightplex that we're doing it with. Um, and, and so we like to keep them as occupied as we can. I think the, the average occupancy for the serious short-term rental landlord uh, in our area is probably on the order of like 70%. We are rarely under 90%. I mean, we oh, stay wow. pretty full. Yeah. So we have very high occupancy. Um, one thing that we do is we'll say like we have a guest coming in for an entire week, like during the week, we'll offer discounts for stays during the week to give them like, you know, a great price that works for them and, um, you know, for multiple nights and stuff like that. So there's definitely ways you can manipulate the pricing and such to attract people and, and get those occupancy amounts up. But it is a balance, right? I mean, you want to get the, the highest amount that you can for the good nights when there's events and stuff like that going on. And then you just want to kind of keep it rented out during the nights when it's maybe not as popular, or not as many people in town. Uh, but yeah, I, I personally am of the opinion that like you ought to be over 80% occupied, at least if you're in a good market. No, that's great. That's, that's definitely great. Um, I think the market that I'm in, most of the people that are doing there are, are a lot less than uh, 80 or 90% occupied. So I guess yeah. maybe a different model or maybe just the marketing or, you know, the work that they're putting in to get tenants is just isn't as thorough and as aggressive as kind of like your approach. But right. uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, what market What market are you in, Penny, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah. So, so it's Kissimmee, Florida. It's actually not far from uh, the Disney oh, parks. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're going to be in the same boat as me, right? You're going to have as much or more tourism as what we do here in DFW. And there's going to be weekends where you'd be able to run out incredibly high prices and do very well. Right. And there'll be some weeks, especially seasonally, that might be a little bit slower. But for a family, I don't, I'm guessing probably winter's the least popular time to go to the parks. You know, maybe you have a discount in February for a family that comes and stays the whole week or something like that. Right. But Right. Yeah, I think you're actually in a pretty similar situation, to be honest. Oh, interesting. Okay, no, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take that advice to heart, and you know we'll see what we can do. We're, we're it's not closed yet, so still have time to figure you know a couple of these, get some more ducks in a row. Um, but definitely good advice there. Um, the biggest risk or downside that people talk about when discussing short-term rentals is damages done by tenants and so much turnover, so many people coming in, coming out. It's hard to screen every single one. How do you mitigate that risk? How do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, while it is hard to screen, you have to do the best job that you can. Um, the best solution is always to have a guest who has previous stays and reviews on their profile. What's interesting is probably 50% of our guests have no reviews. So there's a lot of people who they create an Airbnb account, they use it once, maybe twice. Maybe their previous hosts just never leave them reviews, but they don't have any. Those are the harder ones to vet. Um, we like to ask, we like to ask really just polite, non-invasive questions to the guests that are coming in. Like, you know, hey, Bob, we delighted that you want to stay at our place next week. You know, what brings you to the area? And, you know, and a lot of times people are willing to share. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm here for a work convention or, you know, I want to take my kids to Six Flags or whatever the case may be. So that that goes a long ways. You know, if someone's there for a legit reason. Um, probably the biggest concern with parties, which is usually the most damage to your place is local people. So when you have someone who, you know, like we're in Arlington and, you know, their profile picture looks like they're 17 and they're trying to book your place for one Friday night. 
uh, that's definitely a flag that should go up in your mind and, you know, you should be questioning them on that. So that's kind of step one. I think step two is, is keeping an eye on your property. So we do have security cameras outside our properties, both for the safety of guests and for the safety of our property, you know? And so um, guests are made aware that, Hey, you have three people on your reservation. You're not allowed to have more than that. And so, you know, if we happen to see on a camera that there's 15 people heading towards our house, we know something's probably wrong. Um, so that's kind of what you do during the stay. And then finally, as a last resort, say that something happens and it does get damaged and you have additional cleaning or whatever. Um, a lot of the platforms, specifically Airbnb and Verbo, they do have resolution centers. They have a, a host guarantee basically to where it's kind of like a deposit, but slightly different where, you know, if someone damages your stuff and you provide evidence of that damage, then you can be reimbursed for that. The challenge though, is going to be getting those things resolved before your next guest comes. Um, specifically the hardest one is probably smoking in a property. Ooh. It's very difficult to get that smell out. So, um, you know, you kind of learn with time what you're able to do, but I mean, even us as thoroughly as we've met guests, we do on occasion have times where something will get damaged and we'll have to, you know, call the next guest and say, Hey, like we apologize, but you know, such and such is broken or not working. Um, would you like to cancel with a full refund? Would you like to stay with a discount? You know, what can we do to, you know, make it easiest on you? But if you do a good job, you can keep that to a minimum. Okay, no, cool. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I'd like to pivot over to multifamily for a minute. Um, and obviously we all know that, you know, the market is tough right now and it seems like everything is getting bid and going above asking price, all that stuff. My question is, how are you getting deals done and maintaining that conservative um, approach um, with the underwriting? How does, how does that balance out for you? Yeah, so, you know, I'm not the, I'm not the world expert at, at finding deals, although I do work at it very hard. Um, let me just answer the question by giving, giving three different examples, because I think each one is a different way that your listeners could consider. So if you're an individual investor who's looking to jump into a multifamily deal, whether it's your first one, second one, 20th one, and you're having a hard time finding a deal right now, there's a few ways you can go about it. So our first deal that we did this year, um, we did as co-GPs, meaning we were not the ones who found the deal. Someone else, one of our partners found the deal and brought us in. So you ask the question, why would they want to bring you on the deal? What, what is it that you brought to the deal um, that made you an attractive partner? And the answer in this particular case is uh, really two things. One, the ability to raise a certain amount of capital for the deal. And so that sponsor, they're very proficient in raising money, but they still had a gap between what they were able to do and what the property needed. And so we were brought in to help with that. And then also our proximity to the property, our ability to go there and conduct the due diligence and check in on it every now and then. Those were kind of the two things that I guess got us a seat, if you will, at the GP table. And so um, that's one option is if you're a person who maybe you're in a market where it's really difficult to find properties or that's just not your forte, um, you know, partnering with someone can be a great way to get in on a deal. But you need to figure out what you're going to do to bring value to the team. There's, you know, there's no room for lack of a better way to say it, dead weight on a GP team, right? Everyone needs to have a, a reason for being there. And so, um, you know, for us, it was, it was raising money. And I think for many new GP sponsors, that's probably the best way to get into a deal. 
Um, so that was the first one that we did. The second one was a JV, a small eight unit JV property that we did here in Arlington. So the property, I, I think we bought it at a great price, but for a long-term rental, it was, you know, cash flowing and good, but probably not something I would have pulled the trigger on. I think I could have found something elsewhere that was a better return for my money. But by implementing the short-term business model, we were able to make those returns basically go through the roof. And so that's kind of a second manner is think outside the box when it comes to your business model and what you can do. And that doesn't have to be a short-term rental. It could be implementing, you know, additional fees, you know, adding washer and dryers, charging for parking, internet, all sorts of different things that you can put into your business model that will allow you to place a more competitive offer um, on a particular property. And then the final property we bought this year was through a broker relationship. Um, which I spend a lot of time talking to brokers and some days, you know, it may feel very um, futile in the sense that, you know, you're talking to them and you're not getting anything, but this particular broker had a deal. It's in college station where it was kind of a a mom and pop that owned it. They were self-managing it and it was just getting to be too much for them. Um, Their one thing that they cared about, they had a price that they needed to hit for it. But aside from that, the thing they cared about was having a buyer who was very easy to work with. So it wasn't going to cause them a lot of hassle. wasn't going to be a pain in the butt. And for whatever reason, this broker happened to think of us in that description. And so he brought the property to us and we got it at what I thought was a very fair price. Um, And so that's kind of the third thing is that broker relationship and being the buyer that sellers want to work with. So I don't know. That's like I said, I'm not the world expert, but those are three different things that work for us all in 2021. Right. No, and that's, that's excellent advice. And what I would say is as well is as far as um, idea number two with adding value to another team and the idea with, you know, maybe potentially raising capital, what I kind of felt was um, because the market is so competitive, I found that the ones that were getting most of the deals are the people that already had a bunch of units in that market and knew exactly how they can raise the NOI and how they could maximize the profits of the property and exactly what they can do and exactly where they can, um, not cut corners, but where they can cut down on expenses. Now, someone that's brand new that doesn't have units in that market, it's very hard for them to understand like exactly how they can have that competitive edge because they don't have anything to compare it to. They have to use that uh, sort of conservative and, and careful approach with the underwriting, which comes back to how are you going to win a deal? How are you going to win a deal when you're competing against these sharks that already have a thousand units in the market and know exactly where they need to be at with every line in the underwriting? So that's why I think that advice of, you know, potentially raising capital to the main sponsors, the main GPs by way of capital raising, or maybe there's another way. I think that's fantastic advice. So let them do what they're good at. Let them go and lock down the deal. And then you just find a way to add value to the team. And I think it's a great way to get, you know, a slice of the deal to gain experience. And I think that's fantastic. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, My question to you is, um, are you part of any sort of like mastermind or any sort of like larger group? Or is it just kind of like you guys, you and your wife at this point with the Poji Capital um, taking down deals? Yeah. So when we first started multifamily, like I said, we spent a while reading books and podcasts. And so I've listened to every person's 
podcast, read all the books, all that good stuff that you should do. Um, but we attended a, a conference through uh, Michael Block during the summer of 2020, and then thereafter joined his coaching program. And so um, that was, I would say, one piece of you know what went into our success this year was that very dedicated coaching time. Um, it's interesting because as someone who joined one of those programs, I I see it from a different perspective now coming out of it and going into it. You know, I would tell new students that. Um, you really need to be sure that you're committed to this business and like seeing it through to the end before, you know, you put the kind of money down that it takes to, to buy into one of those programs. Um, and that the expectation should be that, you know, you are the one who's going to be responsible for your success. Like the reason that you have a coach or a mentor, whether it's formal or informal, is not because they're going to do any work for you whatsoever. It's because when you get to those points, like what you were mentioning, um, where it's like, well, I'm looking at this property and like just raising the rents, I'm not getting enough. But I think that if I charge for parking, then I can put in the offer that's going to get me the property. Well, how do you know? Obviously, you can go do your own analysis and stuff. But if you have a mentor or a coach or, or someone that can guide you through that and kind of give you those tidbits, if you will, um, it's definitely something that can accelerate your process. And so, like I said, that comes in a lot of different forms. Quite frankly, I've had several people that I would say have been mentors to me, not just through that coaching program, but, you know, other folks I've heard on podcasts, um, people I know individually. Um, we have a guy who's a KP on our most recent deal, who's kind of been a mentor to us and walked us through a lot of stuff. And even other partners that I've worked with who are very smart. I've been blessed to have some partners who are super astute and, and know a lot of things that I don't know. And so I learned from them as well, but it's kind of just always being in that growth mindset and finding who it is that you need to know to help accelerate your progress. Right. And I love that, that at the end of the day, the responsibility is on you as the investor. And so many people um, kind of like, they, they believe that like mentorship program is like, Oh, I pay the mentor. So now like I, I have to be successful and I have to be good at this. And they don't really understand that at the end of the day, like the mentor can only do what the mentor can do. Like they can't actually go and buy deals for you and then like put the money in your pocket. Like there's a lot, a tremendous amount of legwork that's required on the investor, the aspiring investor side. And I personally also did do a mentorship. It was a little bit less formal than most people. Um, but I definitely can say like it, it, it has helped a tremendous amount just as far as like education and just learning like kind of what you said, like with the underwriting, when you're looking at it, like, hey, how can we squeeze out another little bit of income here? How can we, you know, just lower those expenses just a little bit more to make me more competitive on the offer? Like, these are things that, you know, a, a, an aspiring investor wouldn't necessarily, like, you're not born with, you're not born with that knowledge, yeah. you're not born with that education. So, you know, working with someone that has done, you know, done it before, and, you know, has experience with this, they can help you, you know, get into, get into the game and also accelerate the, the learning curve and the process so much, so much more. Um, yep. I, I'd like to move on to the final four. Um, these are more rapid question answer type. What is, what's your why? Um, that's a really great question. You know, everyone talks about your why. I think that for me, when I really spend a lot of time thinking about my why, which I had a lot of time during COVID and all that, um, it was really hard to pinpoint one thing. Um, so I like to summarize it by um, a verse that's very important to me, which talks about like running the race well, like running in a way that you run the race well. So my hobbies being a runner and a triathlete, 
And um, to me, I want to live my life in a way that, you know, I'm running the race well, I'm doing the best that I can do. And so what that encompasses is um, being able to do the best I can for my family. You know, certainly most people in real estate have the dream of financial freedom, of, you know, having that money and time freedom. Um, for me, part of that is being able to help others. I'm, a, you know, very, uh, very big on, you know, serving others in some way, getting involved in, in some kind of effort to help other people. And I think that we're able to do that multiple ways in multifamily, but certainly with our residents and our investors who are putting money in the deal. So I like that aspect of it. And I like the challenge. I like the fact that, you know, being, being an investor is something that it takes an uncommon amount of just perseverance and drive. And to me, I find that particularly exciting. So to me, all that's encompassed into, into my why. Right. Right. And it sounds like, I, I kind of like this, but it sounds like it, not in a bad way, but a little bit like competitiveness, not with anyone else, but with yourself. Like you want to run your best race. You want to do the best that you could possibly do. And I love that. I love that. Like you hold yourself up to like higher standards and it, it can show up in like every aspect of life, not just in real estate investing, but in fitness or whatever else it may be. And I just think that's a, a great like rule to like run your life by, like just being hundred percent. No. Yeah. Um, all right. What is your favorite book? Man, that's, that's really hard to say. Um, I'm, I'm a very avid reader, so I've been, I've been fortunate to read a lot of books. Um, I, I want to mention, so let me say there's actually two that, that kind of really pushed me on multifamily journey. One was the miracle equation and the other is called the one thing, but they both basically say the same thing that when you have an enormous goal that you're trying to accomplish, um, you need a good plan. Uh, you need to have a lot of faith in your efforts and you need to work very hard and focused in order to achieve that goal. And so those books both give you some tidbits on how to do that. Uh, but they were both very influential in, in jumpstarting my multifamily career. Got it. And it sounds like they're not necessarily, uh, what was it? The one thing and what was the other one? And the miracle equation. And they're not even necessarily real estate related, but cer certainly say. applicable. Yeah. Right. It's amazing. So, okay. So it's not just for real estate. It's anyone that has any, you know, large goal that they're looking to achieve. They can go ahead and, and read those books. That'll help them. Absolutely. Know, even someone, even someone in the W2 world could benefit from it. Got it. Okay. That's cool. Thank you for that perspective. Um, what would you say is your best advice for somebody getting started or looking to get started in real estate? Yeah, I think that, and I have to be careful how I say this because I'll get myself in trouble, but I think it's just go out and do something. You know, it's very clear from listening to my story that, you know, we went and bought our fourplex and we didn't know everything. We didn't know how many water leaks we were going to have or appliances were going to go out. Um, but here we are, you know, several years down the road and um, I have, well, I might do things differently if I went back. I have zero regrets because it really propelled us forward. People talk a lot about mentorship, reading books, podcasts. Definitely, you need to do all that before you pull the trigger and learn. But at the end of the day, experience is the best teacher. And so, you know, if you're not comfortable in doing a full multifamily deal, join another group or partner doing a multifamily deal or go buy a single family home. You know, just do something to be moving forward every day and, and always have that mindset that you need to be taking the next step. Got it. Um, what is your favorite hobby? Yeah. So I kind of already alluded to it, but you know, I've, I've been a runner for a lot of years. And so now I do a lot of triathlon. Um, so it's like three sports wrapped in one, but really running. Um, I like the challenge of it. It's nice because it's, you know, a lot of people, they spend time 
doing exercise and then they go spend time doing a hobby. I have both wrapped in one. So I get to spend twice as much time doing it. Uh, but I really enjoy it. I like the challenge. I like the community in general. Uh, endurance runners are known to be you know, like a pretty, a pretty friendly, supportive community of people. Um, and so I really like that, you know, being surrounded by people who are willing to kind of push you forward, not just in running, but, you know, really every area of your life. Right. Just out of curiosity, how long does it take to train for one of those, like a triathlon or something? Yeah, it really depends. And so if you were doing, if you're doing just a straight marathon, um, you know, if you're someone who you're, you know, decent, I don't, it's, it's hard to define it. Right. But like, you're someone who's maybe decently active or whatever, probably four months is reasonable to do a full triathlon. You're probably looking at more like a year. So it's, it's a lot of time, you know, I start, even though I'm always training, I'm always training for me, a full triathlon plan starts six months before the race. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of preparation that goes into it because it just takes your body a long time to adapt to those kind of distances. Right. Right. And I love how it's like a long-term goal. Like it seems like very like on par with like what we're doing in real estate. We all know real estate is not a get rich quick scheme um, or, or anything like that. So like, it seems like very consistent with, you know, the rest of your life, you're working towards things that are very fulfilling and, you know, have a massive route, but take time to accomplish. And same with the triathlon, like not everybody can take six months and, and just, you know, train towards something, you know, some people want to train today and then be in a race tomorrow. So kudos to you on, on that and the long-term vision and, and the goals that you're, you know, accomplishing with that. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. All right. Um, okay. So how can people reach out to you? Where, where can you be reached? Yeah, sure. Thanks. So as Penny mentioned, our company, my wife and I, um, it's called Apogee Capital. So in aerospace engineering, Apogee is a term that's used when you're calculating like the orbit of a satellite or, or some body of motion around another. And it's basically the furthest point that that body can reach in orbit. And it's important because when you're looking at like satellites and stuff, it shows the reach that they can have over the earth and it has different applications. The more generic dictionary definition of Apogee is basically the, the climax or the furthest potential of something. And so our company is called Apogee Capital because we're trying to help investors reach their financial potential. And so you can learn more about how we do that in multifamily by going to our website, which is www.apogeemfc, like multifamilycapital.com. We have a free ebook. It's all about passive investing. You can download it. Um, it takes like 15 minutes to read. And I think it gives a decent overview of why we think passive investing in multifamily um, is a good choice for folks that, you know, want to put their money into a hard asset that's going to produce great returns um, and provide for a financial future for them and their family. Amazing. Amazing. So I just realized that I butchered the name of your company and I apologize. <laughs> no worries at all. But um, all right. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming on the show. Um, I really appreciate the, the time that you gave and the perspective that you shed on, you know, short-term rentals and with the multifamily and your vision and goals and all that stuff. So definitely an amazing conversation. Thanks so much for joining and looking forward to uh, hearing from you again soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Penny. I appreciate it. Take care now. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Ventures Podcast with Penny Lubinsky. For more free, valuable content, visit plcapitalventures.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave a review and rating on iTunes and subscribe to our channel. This helps the podcast grow and get noticed. See you next time.